I would now like to uh, invite uh, Professor Christine Ellison from the University of Exeter, Professor of Kurdish Studies, to um, address um, us all here um, with her paper on Framing the Past Through Suffering and Victimhood, Kurdish Courses of Identity. So, thank you very much. Um, yes, uh, in this paper I'm not, it's important to say, I'm not seeking to question or belittle the fact of Kurdish suffering or to address the question of whether the Kurds have suffered more than other nations. Um, what I want to do here is make the point that Kurds emphasise their sufferings in their narration of history and that this is a, a key element in the construction of Kurdish identity. Um, so I should say perhaps that um, many of you seem to be historians. Um, I am not a historian. Uh, I'm a folklorist in the sense of um, ethnography of speaking kind of folklorist. It's kind of folkloristics that emerges from linguistic anthropology. Um, and I'm, I'm making these remarks in the context of some uh, ongoing research I'm doing, um, preparing a monograph about, which is trying to bring the methodologies of folkloristics to memory studies in Kurdish. In other words, to say, to talk about how the Kurds talk about the past. Um, so today I'm going to just um, set the scene by taking a couple of quotations and explaining a bit about what the Kurdish discourse is like. Uh, and then I'll give a very quick outline of the major traumatic events which are recalled, and then I'll talk about who's generating the discourse of Kurdishness, um, which are, who are in fact the parties emanating from Iraq and Turkey. And then I'll uh, ask and I hope answer the question of why is the suffering, why is suffering and victimhood em emphasised so strongly in Kurdish discourse? Um, I'll suggest some Kurd-specific local reasons, but also um, wider international factors, which I think are important. So let's take a look at uh, this. Um, oops, yeah. Yes, this is a quotation from 2012 um, online. Somebody called Kani Ghulam, who's a very engaged activist, founder of the American Kurdish Information Network. So, of all the peoples fighting tyrannies, we Kurds alone hold a special place in the ranks of the freedom fighters all over the world. There is this idea of a special, a special unfortunate Kurdish destiny, which is uh, very much with us. But it's not a new thing, because it goes back to the very beginning of Kurdish nationalism. And um, uh, Jean was talking a little bit before about, uh, about Kurdish nationalism, and when we can say um, <coughs> Kurdish nationalism begins, but it's generally, well, it's more or less generally agreed that full-blown Kurdish nationalism is something that comes about sort of during and just after the Second World War, uh, the First World War, sorry, the First World War. So there are other features, as well as the uh, uniqueness of the Kurds and the unfortunate position in which they find themselves, other features of the discourse are the Kurds' constant struggle against repression over many centuries <coughs> and the idea of a constant, uh, the idea of a constant, the Kurds, and the idea of a constant Kurdistan. That's something we can find in the work of some well-respected Kurdish academics, actually, including uh, Amir Hassanpour, for instance, who wrote uh, in 1992 that Kurdistan has been divided twice. The second time was just after the First World War, but the first time was in 1639. So in this context, this is why I'm particularly grateful for the work of, uh, of uh, Baris Shams on... Um, uh, on 
who exactly the Kurds were and what people meant when they used the, Kurd, the word Kurd. Um, and uh, because uh, this is such a, um, this idea of constancy of, of Kurdishness is, is something that's such a strong feature of the, of the discourse at the moment. Um, however, over the last 20 years, we've seen more precise developments um, in the whole delineation of, delineation of Kurdishness and what Kurdish history is, and especially the idea of victimhood and suffering, and the development of the idea of Kurds as victims of genocide. Um, there, is, uh, there was a book which came out in 2013, which is actually called <coughs> The Kurds, A Nation of Genocide. It was written by a Finnish scholar, and it's quite interesting um, because it moves beyond the traditional events that we think of as genocidal in Kurdish history, like Anfal, Halabja, Dersin, um, into a broader framework of a genocide process. Um, she actually suggests that the genocide starts, the genocide process starts with the Tanzimat reforms and the suppression of the um, Kurdish principalities. Um, and then moves on to cultural and, and linguistic genocide. And that is actually quite new, this idea of an all-embracing Kurdish genocide. Um, now, this suffering, this idea, this identity of the Kurds that's associated with suffering and victimhood isn't just an intellectual or political construct. It does have a lot of relevance to ordinary people. Um, there's a lot of examples of that, but one example I could suggest there's a very interesting book by somebody called Ramazan Aras, an anthropological work, which shows how Kurdishness in Turkey is constructed through concepts such as violence, fear and pain. And um, he has a lot of interviews with victims of horrific events and witnesses of horrific events. And it's very noticeable how um, even the victims of horrific events tend to speak in terms of the, their collective identities of, as Kurds and their suffering as Kurds. They link their suffering with their Kurdishness very strongly. And people who perhaps witness things or who haven't experienced such bad things, they make a very strong claim of how strongly they share in the suffering of those people who've experienced the things. So the idea of the Kurds as a community, um, a big community of suffering and victimhood, is very pronounced amongst ordinary people in Turkey um, and in Iraq, as we shall see. But this book refers specifically to Turkey. So I want to ask the questions of why is this identity created and how has it evolved? Um, Let's briefly consider what these uh, events are, because I don't expect you necessarily to all be um, that uh, au fait with Kurdish history in the 20th century. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about the 20th century. I'm not going to, um, after the foundation of the Republic of Turkey, so I won't talk about the Armenian genocide here. But um, there is, um, within Kurdish memory, there's uh, the Sheikh Said rebellion of 1925, the Ararat rebellion um, of the uh, end of the 1920s, the Dersim rebellion of the end of the 1930s. Um, all of those were very severely repressed, especially the Dersim rebellion. Um, and there was a wide program of assimilation afterwards. Uh, then, then again, the 1980 coup is... Uh, uh, the military coup is an event that uh, had a lot of repercussions, involved a lot of violence, and then of course you have the PKK, founded in the mid-1980s, and this so-called dirty war between the PKK and the state that goes on until, um, uh, well, until almost the turn of the millennium. And that is obviously an event where populations find themselves forced to take sides, 
either one side or the other, and then punished by the other side for the side that they were forced into taking. So those who, um, there is the recruitment of village guards, so-called to protect villages against the guerrillas. You have punishment by the guerrillas. You have punishment of entire villages, uh, the rape of women in front of the entire village. You, you have the whole gamut of unbelievable atrocities happening during that period. And so that's Turkey. That's just Turkey. And um, Iraq, you have... Well, most notoriously, um, you have rebellions beginning in the 1960s, um, but uh, the big, um, the big uh, acts of um, uh, the big human rights violations, the big genocidal events happen in the 1980s. Uh, you have the chemical bombing of Fallujah in 1988, and you have the Anfal campaign, um, which is, goes for the couple of years before that, um, and that is following the Iran-Iraq War, of course, which had a lot of violent events associated with it. Um, and the Anfal campaign, as you may know, is a, a campaign of um, deportation and uh, mass murder. And there have been mass graves found in the last few years. So, so this is all. Uh, these are all dreadful, terrible sufferings, um, the sort that uh, that ruin people's lives, obviously, of the survivors. Um, but they're also. I think that what we need to think about is um, not just that uh, it is natural, of course, that one is traumatised by suffering, but why is it that the, these events, that the history is mediated in such a way that these events are always, always foregrounded and that it's the part, it's the suffering and victimhood aspect of the identity which is uh, emphasised. So that's the question in my mind. It's not questioning whether or not these things happened or whether or not they were awful. Um, so let's now consider um, the two main strands that are dominating Kurdish national discourse at the moment, because as, as we all know, the Kurds are divided between four nation states, not two. But in fact, it's two that are sort of making all the running. Um, first of all, we have uh, the Iraqi Kurds, um, who are, well, sort of here. Um, and uh, they... It's not a particularly ideologically strong movement, Kurdish nationalism in Iraq. Um, and we, we have, I, I won't go into the setup and the political parties and the conflicts between them, but uh, they are, since 1991 and the setting up of the safe haven in the wake of the uh, first Gulf War, they have had de facto autonomy. Since 2003, they've been able to build what's often referred to as a quasi-state. So they're, they're setting up institutions, uh, state institutions of <coughs> Kurdishness. There's a lot of knowledge production going on. There's an education system educating in Kurdish, education, educating them in Kurdish history and a Kurdish view of the world. Uh, there are ministries that focus on the aftermath of, um, of some of these events that I've just mentioned. So the Ministry of Anf there is a specific um, ministry devoted to Anfal affairs. Um, there is a lot of stuff, obviously, about the past sufferings in the media. Uh, there are uh, museums. There are all sorts of state, well, all the sort of state, um, uh, state institutions that one would expect for knowledge production. So, obvious, uh, and uh, the media include, I should say, the media, a very important part of Kurdish media in general, is that over the last uh, couple of decades, um, there's been a big growth of satellite television, which enables a much wider reach than the Kurdish homeland. So, um, they are able to 
produce knowledge about Kurdishness and about the past um, on their own terms in quite a powerful way, despite not being um, a state as such. Now, in Turkey, the situation's different. It's very much dominated by the PKK, um, which is a hard-left organisation, extremely coherent, extremely joined up. Um, it was formed in the 1980s with a strong discourse that the state had wronged the Kurds and that it was time to right the wrong and that they had suffered so much that they were responding to that suffering. Um, people about my age um, who've been to conferences in the 1990s with PKK representatives might remember you could not attend a conference and speak to them at a conference without hearing first the full litany of all the awful things. It was always the precursor to any conversation that you could have with them about... Um, about the situation or what they thought the solution was. It was always, they always set out the case every single time. So it was a very strong aspect of their, um, their stance. Um, and the PKK is very controlling of the cultural activity within, its, um, within the areas that it controls. It has a leader cult. It has a cult of martyrs. <coughs> it has a philosophy of... Um, a sort of new man philosophy. So if you want, you should be a new man or a new woman, which means that you're completely dedicated to the cause and not to other sort of worldly things. Um, yes, now the PKK as such is only part of a wider movement. There are a lot of sister organisations because the PKK guerrilla in the mountains is, is um, now quite a small part of the whole movement. There, are, there is... Um, a party in Turkey, the BDP, which has links to the PKK and is part of the same movement. And that has become an important political force in Turkey. And um, there have been areas of uh, big towns in Turkey, like Diyarbakir, which is the biggest town in uh, the Kurdish part of Turkey, um, has been under Kurdish administration for quite a lot of years now. Um, and there are sister organisations in Syria, of course. It is an organisation affiliated to the PKK that is running the famous cantons, including Kobani, where there was all, all the fighting last year. Um, and the movement is also strong, quite strong in Iran, uh, and the movement is extremely strong in the diaspora. So it's very joined up, and it's very good at producing knowledge, training people, influencing people. So they are also, and they are, of course have media at their disposal, satellite TV and social media and things. So they are also um, producing uh, discourse. So one big difference. So they're, they're very different kinds of organisation, um, kinds of movement. The Kurdistan regional government in Iraq is a very different beast from the PKK-affiliated Kurdish movement. Um, but both sides, both of these movements, are emphasising Kurdish suffering and victimhood. So they have a slightly different view of the world, but they still have this very strong view of Kurdish suffering and victimhood. Um, so you see in Iraqi Kurdistan, you see lots of projects like oral history projects, say, aimed at uh, collecting evidence for the armed foe. Or in Turkey, there's a lot of uh, books or TV programs that are victim narratives, a lot of stuff about prison narratives. Now, that's not just peculiar to Kurds in Turkey. It goes much far beyond the Kurds, but I'll say something about that in a moment. So... Now, I'll try and answer the question of why is the suffering emphasised so strongly? Well, first of all, in Kurd-specific terms, um, this, is, this is a sort of difficult thing to explain, really. Um, 
at uh, just in, in in half a minute. But um, but the um, the traditional ways of speaking about the past in Kurdish are often melancholic um, because often the heroic songs about the past tend to be sung in melancholic modes. They're very popular. And there are other speech genres which um, memorialise the past, which recount the past, which are um, also very melancholy. So <coughs> memory can lurk outside ordinary narrations or outside ordinary um, oral history interviews and actually be found <coughs> very strongly in these melancholic modes. So, for instance, you have things like uh, lullabies where women will sing about how unhappy they are and how people have been killed, and, and they also have lamentations. You have all these other genres that people don't really talk about that are passing on sadness about the past. Um, I could say more about that. It's a big subject in my book, but uh, I'll, um, I'll sort of move on to the wider um, the wider aspects of it as well. I think also this part of uh, this idea about victimhood and suffering being very important is a global phenomenon. There's um, you may know that some of you may know the work of Didier Fassin and um, he wrote a book with Robert Rechtman about uh, the politics of victimhood, tracing how victimhood has moved from being something that at the time of the First World War was extremely shameful to being something that now gives you the moral high ground. And not only do you have the moral high ground if you're a victim, but you also, um, there is also uh, moral worth in bearing witness to atrocity. Just the bearing witness itself is seen as a morally worthy act. And uh, Fassan and Rechtman also say that, um, as Reinhard Koselleck predicted, history is now told from the point of view of the vanquished. And this is something that we can see is happening and has happened more and more in recent years. At the same time, somebody mentioned Pierre Nora this morning. And one of Pierre Nora's things was um, that there's this huge memory boom going on. And I think the memory boom is possi it's possibly part of the same thing, that uh, people are more and more motivated to remember the past anyway. And that there is a strong fear, fear of oubli, which is sort of active forgetting, but a fear of forgetting and of things being forgotten. Um, Andreas Heysen says, he speaks of today's critical memory cultures with their emphasis on human rights and reassessing the past. And I think that this sort of wider climate is also part of what the Kurds are speaking to. That's not to say that the fear of fear of forgetting for, Kurd for Kurds is the same as fear of forgetting for us because I always think that Pierre, Pierre Nora is talking about a very European kind of crisis of memory. He's talking about France in Les Lieux de Mémoire. But, um, I mean, for, for the Kurds in Turkey, um, Turkey's having a memory explosion at the moment. People are trying to recall what happened in the First World War and remembering is still an act of contestation in, in Turkey. And now that the violence is coming back in Turkey in a big way, it's no wonder, really, that people are still very much afraid that things, important things are going to be forgotten. And in Iraq as well, the Kurdish quasi-state, is it's difficult. It, its sustainability is not clear, especially now, but even a few years ago it wasn't terribly clear. So people feel very insecure in Iraqi Kurdistan as well. So it's not surprising. They, they have real concerns about, uh, about forgetting and being forgotten. Um, the anthropologist uh, Andrea Fischer-Tahir, who works in Iraq, 
has uh, analysed the development of the discourse concerning the Anfal events. Um, and they were talked about as human rights um, violations, but then over recent years they've become more and more often defined as genocide. Um, and she thinks, but the part of this, part of this uh, emphasis on it as genocide is the fact that um, it, 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 the, it's, it, there's an underlying shame there. She thinks, she suggests, that the Peshmerga and um, the Kurdish uh, political parties um, feel some shame about not having been able, to, been able to protect civilians at the time. And that if they're now framing it, they are now, they've recently started to frame it in terms of a genocide that was planned by the Ba'ath Party as long ago as the 60s or the 70s, which is taking it back a very long way. And she thinks that might be because they're sort of trying to frame it as something that was inevitable and something that nobody could have done anything about because it was a genocide. So she suggests that, um, and I, I, there isn't time to talk about it here, but there is some friction between the victims themselves and the way the Kurdish government has used um, discourse about, um, about the genocide. <coughs> um, I, I can perhaps talk about that if somebody asks a question. Um, my feeling about this... Uh, these demands that the um, that the Iraqi Kurdish government is making um, that it, that Anfal be recognised as a genocide on the international level. My feeling about that is that it's part of their performance of statehood, as it were. So in and this is very different from Turkey. In Iraq, they are asking for recognition of genocide. It is a Kurdish government asking for gen recognition of Kurdish genocide at an international level. In Turkey, witnessing to suffering and victimhood is an act of Kurdishness, and it's also a form of contestation against the Turkish state. So the two are very, very different in terms of hegemony. So, in conclusion, what I would like to say is... Um, it, about this discourse of suffering. I think that the, the discourse of suffering and victimhood actually brings quite a lot for the Kurds. It's, um, obviously, it's based on traumatic experiences that are extremely difficult to live with, but it, it enables many of the victims to bear witness and makes a space where they can do that acceptably. There is now a space that they can speak to. They can now speak to this discourse with their experiences. It would have been very different, difficult for them um, some time ago, but now there is a space to which they can speak. Um, but it also enables Kurds as a collective to claim redress but also, um, uh, and uh, claim their rights and recognition, and also it's a way for them to take their place on the international stage. Thank you.